this is one of your first times here, a few of you have traveled and this is your last time here for a while, I just want you to know I love you. I am excited that you're here. Our church is certainly not perfect. If it were, when I walked into it, it would have become tainted. Uh, but we are doing our very best to strive for the perfect will of God. If you see something that you think is not quite right, you are invited, absolutely invited, even compelled, to come and tell us. We are making every effort in every area of our lives to conform with the Word of God. Uh, having said that, if you don't see something in the Word that uh, contradicts what we're doing, then give us the benefit of the doubt. Uh, we're not saying this is the only way to do it. We're just saying it's the way God's led us to do it, and so far it seems to be working pretty well. We're, we're excited about God's presence in our midst. Are you all in Hebrews 11.1? One? No? Okay, we'll get to Hebrews 11.1. Our uh, message today is called The Gates of Hades. Gates of Hades. And uh, there's some things we want to teach about this that I think will be good. I think they'll help you along the way. You know what? Since y'all are now in Hebrews 11.1, let's break the mold a little bit. Y'all stretch forth your hands. Let's pray over the Word. Let's pray that the word that comes forth would not only be anointed, but that it would meet your need in your heart. I read a book recently that said he encourages his church that when he's preaching to hear the word within the word. There will be what I preach today that goes out to everyone. But there will be some part of it that God anointed for your ears alone. And he does that because he cares about directing you. Mighty God, Lord, as this church stretches forth their hands, Lord, we pray that you would anoint the word that comes forth from this pulpit. Mighty one, that like a prophet of old, we would be carried along in our speech. Mighty God, I'm asking that your word would meet their needs and no others. We don't want to minister to their minds, Lord God. We want to minister to the very spirit in a spiritual way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so Hebrews 11.1, 1, our title is Gates of Hades. Y'all are there? Alright, Hebrews 11.1, 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. This is one of those passages that has become Christianese. It has become uh, just something that we quote, almost cliche, like a bumper sticker slogan. But can you imagine writing it for the first time? Saying that to have faith in God means that you are certain of something that you cannot see. Sure that something you have not seen happen will happen. What a beautiful description. It's become for us a definition of faith, but in so defining it, we've kind of lost something because it just rolls off the tongue without penetrating the heart. If you cannot see it, it is hard to be sure of it. If you have not seen it, it is hard to be certain, isn't it? This is why it is called faith, trust. The concept of blind faith is a ridiculous joke. There is no such thing. The king of the universe has never asked you to do something blindly. Instead, the very creation speaks about his attributes. His word teaches you what he is like. He has never asked you to do something without showing you something of himself first. Every decision we make, everything that we do requires that we move in faith because the book of Hebrews says without faith it is impossible to please God. Now, people have different ideas about faith. 
George Michael sang a song about faith at the same time he sang some other pretty nasty songs. And to him, faith was a noun to be possessed, something that you have and you put on a shelf like a Bible cover or a drum, just something that you own. In the Bible, faith is not that. It's not that at all. It is almost never a noun. Almost every time it shows up, it is in the form of a verb. It is something that you are actively doing, not something that you possess, something that you are doing. To be certain, to be sure. Turn with me to Romans 10, 17. We'll flip through a few scriptures here, then we're going to find our home. In Romans 10, 17, <laughs> Jeremy's there. Where are the rest of you? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. If you like it in King James, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is how most of us learn to quote it. You cannot have faith or trust in God in an area that God has not spoken to you about. That is a very interesting concept, something that we don't think about a lot. We say the Word is your guide for living. The Word is your everything. But the Word did not tell you who to marry. The Word did not say go to work at Thrustmasters. The Word did not say choose this house. How do you have faith that you're living in the right house? How do you have faith that you are marrying the right person, working in the right job, or going to the right church? How do you have faith in something like that? It can only come from one thing. You must have heard the word of Christ. Now that is such a difficult thing and so simple all at the same time. How many times has somebody said, man, you need to hear from God? You're like, you got his phone number? I mean, how does this work? Is there an email address? Is it like the movie where Jim Carrey's God and he gets a billion emails a day? How does it work? And the charismatic community of which most people would identify me as a part is the worst. Well, I heard from God this. I heard from God that. I heard it just like the windshield wiper went this way and that way. When the truth is, most of the time, we presume to God. Very few times in my life have the heavens shook and God spoke. But this race for me started with him speaking to me in an audible way. I don't care whether you have a hard time accepting that or not. Sixteen years of my life have proven that it was true. It knocked me down. And when he knocked me down, when I stood up, I have never been the same again because it put something in my life that was not there before. Something that I could trust in in any circumstance. There are a lot of times I don't know what to do next. There are times that I go to fix a problem and my actions multiply the problem. I can be my own worst enemy without any question, but I can always go back to the day where he spoke to me, and I said, Lord, change me. And if nothing else is certain in my life, that is certain in my life. It is called the revealed word of God. There's a general revelation, and then there is a revealed word. You might know that Bo Jackson ran... A record time in the 40-yard dash. You might know he was 240 pounds, had a Nike contract, and liked to jump rope with a two-inch chain. But there's a difference between knowing those things about him and having been his closest friend. Most of the time, the church operates in a general knowledge of God. We know that the Word says he likes to heal, but does he want to heal you? We know that the Word says he likes to save, but does he want to save this person sitting next to me? 
say, well, I don't have to ask those things. If you want to stake your life on it, you better. Look at Romans 4 while you're in the book of Romans. Romans 4, start with me in 18. When I was first born again, I began reading the Word. There were question marks in my Bible throughout. I have kept that Bible to remind me that the Christian walk starts with asking the right questions. It really does. We presume that the Christian walk starts when we have found the right answers. No, I think it starts when you find the right questions to ask. Like, Lord, what would you have me to do? Instead of saying, Lord, I know what you can do for me. That's an answer. The other is a question. When you see people born again in the Word, he shows them what they must suffer for his namesake. And what they must do for him. When we see people born again, it has come to this altar so Jesus can fix everything that's wrong. Him fixing everything that is wrong is a byproduct of you doing what he tells you to do. Romans 4.18, when I was first born again, became for me the definition of faith. I was not sophisticated enough. I didn't have intellectually what I needed to grasp Romans or Hebrews 11.1. When people would say, now faith is this, I, I went, huh? And the flies and gnats began to circulate around my open mouth and the computer Standing in front of me looked like the monkey at it, picking keys. I didn't get it. It made no sense. But when I read Romans 4 for the very first time, something jumped off the page at me, and it became the revealed Word of God in my life. It became my working definition for faith. It may not do that for you. I'm just giving you my pearl. You can do with it what you like. Romans 4, 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. The first thing that I want you to know is that circumstances are usually at war with your trust in God. That's what makes it trust. It is not difficult to trust that you're not going to fall when you're sitting on the ground. Let's suppose that you're sitting in this chair right now, not concerned that you will fall at all. But if the circumstance changes and I put that chair on top of a hundred foot pole, same size chair, same structure, same everything, but you're a hundred feet in the air... What does your flesh begin to tell you? You're going to begin to fall. Someone asked me once, Eric, are you scared of heights? No, but I do have a healthy respect the higher I go. (laughs) I don't have a problem jumping out of a plane, but I do not like to stand on something narrow very high in the air. So why? I don't have a problem standing on the same narrow object on the ground. Faith is at war with your circumstances, and circumstances are at war with your faith. This is why when God says go Kill this Philistine, he's nine feet tall and you're a little guy. It's why when he says cross a river, it's at flood stage. It's why when he says go through this Red Sea, Pharaoh is behind you. Circumstances provide the opportunity to test, try, refine, prove your faith. So Abraham, against all hope, Abraham in hope, believed. So he became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. It had been said to who? Why was it not said to Abraham's best friend? Why was it not said to Abraham's uncle? Why not? Because faith comes by hearing. Abraham could not set out from Ur of the Chaldees. He could not go do the things that God wanted him to do until he personally had heard something from God. And then it didn't matter. It didn't matter what anybody else said, thought, or did. His daddy could be an idolater, and he was. His nephew could be baggage along the way, and he was. But Abraham had heard something. On this he could take his stand. 
I'm encouraging you to find a very, very personal relationship with a communal global God. That he will engage you to the extent that you will engage him. That he will share with you a special something in your life that can become a foundation for it forever. And he will do it again and again and again. Do you know that 1 Timothy 3 says you cannot even be a table waiter in the house of God, a deacon? That's somebody who literally delivers bread. Unless you're a man worthy of respect. Your wife is temperate. You're the husband of but one wife. Not speaking of divorce, but multiple marriages. And then, if you grasp the deep truths of the faith with a sincere conscience and hold on to them, you're allowed to be tested. And after tested, then you can serve tables in the church. That's for the smallest requirement in the church. All of those things must be present. Do you know why? When you have not heard from God like Abraham heard from God here, as soon as storms and trials come, what do you have to stand on? Well, so-and-so said it was God. I thought it was God. It looked like it was God, but now it doesn't look like God. How can you be sure? How can you be certain? How can all of your hope be placed in something that you never personally grab hold of? Saints, this is what is wrong most of the time in Christianity. We venture out for something that we say is God, and the truth is we're kind of hoping it is. It looks like it. It's the latest vision. Right now, G12 is a big thing. We're not a big church, so we don't have a G12, right? That might be a car, too. But in the charismatic community, it's a principle of discipleship. It's so funny because one church got it, man, and it it is foundational. God spoke it to them. The other churches went, Oh, look, it's working for them. Maybe it will work for us. Is that how God's vision works? No. no. Well, they got a gym. We should have a gym. If God called you to, you should. By the way, with the principle of 12, one of Jesus' 12 was a devil. Are we going to imply that principle too? We're following the G12. Which one's the devil? Just go ahead and mark him now. Yo, these things only work when God has said them to you. One of the problems with the Word of Faith movement, of which I have many, many uh, positive things to say, is that when you make God a formula, the formula only works to the one he gave it to. Smith Wigglesworth raised people from the dead, but he himself had some pretty serious physical problems he was never healed from. God spoke to him and said, you will not take medicine. So he didn't. But God didn't tell me not to take medicine. So when I get a headache, I take Tylenol. That offends you, I'm sorry. Pray God speak to me. Right? When he speaks it, you can stand on it. You can stand on what he has said to you. Romans 4.18 Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. You mean there was a chance for his faith to weaken? Of course. Over the 20 years he was being tested, I imagine it was grinding upon him. How would you like to be named Exalted Father, Abram, and can't have kids? And then God changed your name to Father of Many Nations and can't have kids. And his promise to you, would you think you were insane? As many as you count specks of sand out there and stars in the sky. How would you like that hanging over your head all of the time? It would be about like being the youngest brother of 12, or second to youngest, and going and telling everybody, God said, I'm going to reign over all of you. (laughs) Listen to what happens. 
Since he was about a hundred years old and Sarah's womb was also dead. I want you to notice faith does not deny circumstances. I was working somewhere and a brother of mine had a personal physical ailment. The kind that you... Personal physical ailment. Something you would like not to share with people. Especially from a pulpit recorded for the whole world to hear. He says, I need to go home. I'm about to bleed through my clothes. Okay, go talk to the boss. I went and talked to the boss, who, by the way, had lots of personal vices. We never see our own personal vices. We only see other people's. And he said, I need to go home. She said, just don't receive it. The brother was a new believer, and he came back and said, what do I do? She says, if I have faith, I just won't receive it. He said, tell her it's too late. They already landed. He was bleeding through his clothes. Just don't receive it. That's not faith. Faith is when you have heard something from God. Not when you've supposed it. Not when somebody told it to you. When you heard it from God, then you take your stand regardless of what happens around you. Everybody in the world can say you're crazy. And you take your stand. This is what happens to deacons when they are tested. One of the best ways to find out if somebody is really called is tell them, you're not going to have the opportunity to serve in that area. If the calling is real... It will stay regardless of those circumstances. If the calling is not real, it will go right out the window along with all the supposed faith there was for it. Tested, perseverance, character, hope. Those things don't disappoint and result in maturity. Look at verse 20. This is really where the definition of faith was for me. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God. I want you to know that the words never occurred. Abraham, I promise you. Abraham, I promise to you. Never happened. But he regarded anything that God said to him like a man would regard a promise. Go one better, like a blood covenant. He did not waver regarding the promise of God that had been revealed to him. But he was fully persuaded that God was able to perform what he had promised. For you to be fully persuaded, saints, which is necessary for you to accomplish God's will, you must first know what God's will is. God wants me to live in this house. Well, good, because if he wants you to live in this house, there is undoubtedly going to be trials. Everything that he does is opposed by the enemy. And you need to be fully persuaded so that you are not wavering not fickle. And all of us would be fickle if he had not spoken it to us. How else do you stand? Luke 16, 16 says that from the time of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of God has been advancing and forceful men force their way into it. How does that work? You have to know what God wants of you. Otherwise, how could you be forceful about anything? That would be presumptuous and it would be wrong. I know some men that believed that God had spoken to them to walk on water. I got interesting friends. Actually, one of them, kind of the leader, said, God's called us to do this. We can do greater things than Jesus. He's called us to do it. Hadn't he called us? And the first one says, yeah, yeah, brother, he's called us. Hadn't he called us? Hadn't he called us? It looked like a pep rally. And before long, all the guys are going, yeah, yeah, he called us. Let's do it. They all walked out dry and all walked back. So why? Did God let them down? No, God never said 
even if the first man thought he said it to him, what is the other nine's excuse? We can get caught up in what looks right. I have done this many, many times. God says A and B, and I fill in C, D, E, all of the rest, because it seems to fit. But then when troubles and storms come, did God fail or did I? I'm convinced the problem must be with me. So you have to boil it back down. What did God say? You know, in the last few months, I had a laptop stolen, a gun stolen. Pastors have guns sometimes. Don't worry, I'm not storing food and waiting for the end of the world. I'm waiting for the appearance of Jesus. My Bible was stolen. Those things hurt. I came to church yesterday. My trailer, titled in the church's name, stole me. Yeah, that hurts, doesn't it? But I got news for the devil. I've hidden the word in my heart. I will not back up. My treasure is not in a trailer parked out back or any other possession that can be stolen. It is in the heavens. Because God's word has been revealed to me. I know what I must do. I know what I am compelled to do. It's like fire shut up in my bones. I cannot help but be what God has called me to be. This is not some special category for pastors. This is all people of faith. This is what we aspire to. We aspire to that place where you know in this area, yes, this is the right woman. This is who I am to marry, and she feels the same way. In fact, when people cannot look you in the eye and say, I know beyond any shadow of a doubt, this is my spouse, what are they going to do in the first year of marriage? What are they going to do? I got a text from a friend this morning, a very close friend. I love him. We've developed the kind of relationship where we can say hard things to each other. And he had a prophecy for me, and I've taken it to heart, and I'm listening to the words of it, and I believe it's probably God, waiting to see what the Lord says. At his wedding, five minutes before we walked out where I was the best man, I stopped him, grabbed his shoulders, and said, Are you sure you want to marry this woman? Her mother happened to be there. I thought there was going to be a fistfight. But let me ask you something. Is that a good friend or a bad friend? I want friends like that in my life. He said, yes, I am confident. The first year of their marriage brought incredible trials. But they survived them all. They survived everyone. Because they could go back to the revealed word of God in their lives. I wanted the P-Rose to move here worse than anything in the world in 2004. I sent them postcards every day. I sent scriptures to them every day. I drove to Baton Rouge to speak to them without them telling them I was coming. And then once they said they were coming, I started to discourage them and tell them how hard it was going to be. Because when they got here, I wanted to make sure that they had the revealed word in their lives they could stand on. All else is shifting sand. The revealed word is like a rock. Revealed word will always be taken as a promise. It will always strengthen you. And in difficult times, it should persuade you. If you don't have that, that's okay. Get it or sit and wait. You understand you cannot move forward in areas without faith. When you do, God will begin to strip it away. He'll begin to boil it down so that you don't hurt yourself and other people. Move with me then. The Bible is, uh, let's see, I want you to go to Matthew 16. The Bible is awesome. It is useful for instructing 
rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We call it the living word because God uses it to speak accurately two millennia after it was written. Having said that, if we don't interact with it in a living way, if you are not embracing it and inviting it via the person of Christ to interact with you, you can know what it says. You can know what people say about it. But how do you know any of it is for you? Who do I marry? Where do I go to church? Where do I live? What occupation should I be in? All of those are decisions that should have been birthed in the throne room of God and revealed to you. Otherwise, when you go to be a welder and you have your first layoff, what happens? Maybe I shouldn't be a welder. Did I pick the wrong trade? Did I just waste my life in that technical school? All of those things begin to happen. So God's providing an opportunity. He's providing an opportunity for us to stop, examine, and if you're already married, the Word of God says in the book of Corinthians, don't leave your spouse. If you're a believer, don't leave your spouse. So if you're already married, let's consider that that is God, right? Not speaking about after the fact. Lord, was it your will that I have this child? Have you ever heard that? Have you ever seen how many miracles have to take place to have a, not a child that's an accident? said, but she's 15 and she's pregnant. I'm sorry, that's difficult for you. Mary was probably 14. Is that a problem? Children are not accidents. And the worst thing you could do as a parent is treat it like a tragic thing. Threaten your teenage daughters. Threaten your teenage sons. Tell them the world will come to an end. But if that happens, you celebrate it as life because children are not accidents. I want us to begin to seek God so we have something to stand on. All of these areas we must hear the word of Christ in order to make sure and certain so that we can cut against our circumstances without weakening in our trust, but rather be strengthened and persuaded that God has the power to do what he has promised. You in Matthew 16? Yes. Well, you know, I don't know yet. We're going to find it. Do the Jesus say, is it not written? (laughs) All right, Matthew 16. Look, while I'm staring at Matthew 16, I don't think I can help but tell you, if you have titles above this, one of them says Peter's confession of Christ. Another says Jesus predicts his death. And then the last one says his transfiguration. I want you to understand that a confession of who Jesus is should always lead to a transfiguration. If you have been confessing Romans 10, 9, and 10, I believe in my heart this, that, and the other, and there has been no transfiguration, go back and do it again. Go back and get an intimate knowledge of who he is. Because when you make a confession of the revealed word of God in your life, it will transform you. If somebody is standing before you saying, yeah, you ought not get a message from the titles put in your Bible, but I can't help it. If somebody is standing before you saying, Jesus is Lord, but there is no transfiguration in their life, they are telling you what they have heard others say, what they believe the word says, but not what has been revealed to them personally. Because when it's been revealed to you personally in the kind of way where it comes off the page and it anchors in your heart, it begins to transform your life. You cannot help it. You can't help it. I went so far as to throw out even my clothes, and there was nothing wrong with my clothes. Went to my friends' houses and poured out their alcohol cabinets. Threw away all their CDs. 
It was zeal without knowledge, but there was a definite, ongoing effort to transform my life. I lived in a fairly small town. I spent the first two years finding every person that I knew I had wronged and apologizing to them personally. Now how hard that was. Some of the men that I had bullied now had heard he's not nearly so tough as he used to be. And they took advantage of that. One spit a loogie right in my face at Blockbuster Video on Jones Creek. But when you have received the word of God, it will cause you to go against your circumstances, to cut against the grain. Saints, if you never had that kind of experience, you better back up and get one. Because if you're not willing for somebody to spit in your face, you might never have met the king. Maybe you've just heard about it. Maybe it's the general revelation. Maybe you know him like people know Bo Jackson. Matthew 16. Let's start in the 13th verse. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples. I guess before we get into the question, I already tell you about the city. Caesarea Philippi is interesting. If you've ever been reading the Word, there's more than one Caesarea in the Word. That's why this one's called Caesarea Philippi. Sometimes the other one's called Caesarea Maritime. Uh, Herod laid out an area to build a temple. Not the temple to God, but a temple that Augustus Caesar could be wor- worshipped in. He built the first one near Caesarea's present-day city. This is on the coast. The map's too far for me to see it. It's on the coast. It is a coastal city. And in Caesarea, not Philippi, but Caesarea Maritime, it was in Israel but built exactly like Rome. You can still go there today and see Roman architecture and Roman aqueducts. Herod, although he was a corrupt Jew, uh, wanted to impress the Romans. He wanted to have a place where when the Romans came, they could go, wow, this is as modern, as nice, and as nasty as Rome is. So when you go to Caesarea, there's lots of bathhouses. There's lots of things that we would consider pornography written on walls, things that Jews would find very, very offensive. Well, not to be outdone, Herod Philip, his son, builds a city in Caesarea Philippi. He wants to go one further than his daddy did. He wants to honor Caesar Augustus in a way that will impress any Roman. So in an area uh, where Mount Hermon is, this is the northern area of Israel with snow-capped mountains, beautiful Three tributaries there that form the Jordan River, the Dan, the Hapanai, and the Panias. All three of those form the Jordan River. It's kind of a source of life. He cut into the side of the mountain face the Roman gods. The Greek gods of the Pantheon merged with the way the Romans worshipped them. Now, what's amazing is that this area had been given to the tribe of Dan. Jeroboam, son of Nebat in Kings 12, had set up in this place a center of idolatry. When you're reading the Old Testament, you find many times, but he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And after a while, you're like, who is Nebat and Jeroboam? They're bad guys, right? The center of Baal worship was in Caesarea Philippi, at the foothills of Mount Hermon. But when the Greeks came and began to be there because of Rome's presence in Israel, they didn't like the term Baal. So they did what religions do. They practiced something called syncretism. Instead of worshiping Baal there, where he had been worshipped historically, by the way, Baal's the god of fertility, the god of the underworld, the god of dung, and the god of flies. Right? Nice, huh? You want that on your resume? 
said, his name's not Baal. We've always worshipped him, but his name is Pan. So they renamed him. They scratched Baal off of altars and wrote Pan on altars. In 1997, I got to go stand right here. I had no idea what happened there in history. But I stood. I, I, if my computer hadn't been stolen, I'd show you pictures. We're standing there and looking at an enormous sheer rock face. And there are grottoes cut into it. And one of them, the biggest one, with a cave under it, is labeled the Grotto to Pan. It's interesting because Pan, god of fertility, god of the underworld, god of, he's usually figured as a half goat, half man. He was celebrated with pagan sexual practices with animals. And uh, we've got a mixed crowd today, but ugly things. This is the setting where Jesus is standing. And he says, who do men, who do people say the son of man is? Since this is the source of the Dan, the Hanai, and the Panias, the Greeks associated it with the underworld. Because to them, water that went into caves went down to a place that the Greeks called Hades. The Hebrews would have called it Sheol, the abode of the dead. And see, it disappeared right under the Grotto de Pan. So they saw this as the gates to the underworld, the gates to Sheol, or another way you might say it, the gates of hell. Right? And through centuries, different ways, they had worship here. One of which... Rome actually became detested by and stopped. It's unclear exactly when it stopped. But they took their children and they throwed them in the, these three tributaries that went under the Grotto de Pan. And if they saw blood come out the other side, they said, you know, Pan has accepted our, our child's sacrifice. If they didn't see blood come out the other side, they did it again. That's a pretty wicked place, isn't it? Cut right into the rock face. Can you imagine how intimidating it would be for some Jewish boys following their rabbi to be standing here in the Las Vegas of the ancient world looking at this giant edifice of Pan and all of the gods there by the Roman occupiers and Jesus is standing there right behind him. Who do men say that I am? What an important question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I've taught the Hebrew roots of the scripture long enough now that I could break off on all three of those subjects and teach for hours. But it won't help you. You need to know what it is Jesus was trying to get to happen in his revealed word of God. He asked these questions. Who do people say that I am? with the backdrop of pagan gods, and then ask more specifically, who do you say that I am? See, there are so many areas where we know in general what we should do, right? We know that the Word says in general to do these kind of things. There are these areas where we've heard many sermons on it, we've done all this, but what about this specific situation? The Word of God must become alive. It must become real to us. We must not be able just to sit and say, well, the Bible says, but God says to me to love my boss, even though he's a pig. My boss is not a pig. But we need to be able to say, I 
know the Bible says to love our wives, but God told me to marry this woman. We need to be able to stand on, I am in this job because He told me to be here. I am in this church not because the preaching is good, not because the worship is good, not because of the... We don't have any stained glass. Not because of some superficial reason, but because God said to be there. And if all of those things happen, it really doesn't matter whether mountains fall into the sea or the earth gives way. If everything fails, God's word will not fail. Otherwise, our faith is tossed back and forth like leaves in the wind. This is not how it's supposed to be. We seldom take the time to seek and answer Jesus' question. Isn't it nice of him to set it up this way? Who do people say that I am? Just to kind of get the wheels turning. Then can you imagine his gaze turn and struck Peter? Who do you say that I am? What a moment of inflection. What a strategic point in his life. How many of you have been there? You're at a point where you're going to turn left or right. You're left with no choice. And now you need to know. God, what is your will for me? Do I go? Do I stay? Do I heal? Do I wound? Do I speak up? Do I shut up? Do I take the job? Do I not take the job? How many of those things? And how many of those can you stack up without having sought Him before your whole life becomes shaky and unstable? So many times we are where we're at because we never stopped waiting. You know, there were times God required of his people to simply sit and be still for a week. Every year. A week. Other times he required 40 days. When's the last time you just devoted an entire hour to nothing but, Lord, what you want in this situation? So this is a foundation for a Christian's walk. Peter's answer is amazing. They replied, some say this, uh, verse 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When he says you're the Christ, if they're speaking Hebrew, and I believe they were, he says you are the Messiah. The Messiah was figured as a king-like figure, a prophet, a priest. He was called Emmanuel, God with us. This is Peter's way of saying, you are the Who do people say that I am? You are everything that is important. You are before all things. You have supremacy in all things. You hold all things together. You reconcile all things. You are before all things. Boy, when you get that kind of revelation that you can stand on, it becomes a rock in your life. It takes precedence over people who hurt you. It takes precedence over areas where you have rights because he is before all He reconciles all things to himself. He is supreme. But unless you have had that experience, how do you live something out like that? For you, the Bible is a book of rules. I do this, I don't do this. The Word says this, they're not obeying it, so it won't work. Really? Because my God has been working with mankind that didn't obey his Word since, I don't know, he created the first one. What has God revealed? You are the son of the living God. How about that? Living God. Why living? Because Jesus is standing in a place where behind him are all the dead 
gods carved into stone, mute idols that can't speak. You go kill your kids for Pan, you could do horrible things with animals, and Pan still would not speak to you. But the Messiah, the ultimate one, is not like a God made of stone or wood. He has the ability to speak. It is the very thing that the kingdom itself is founded upon. Founded upon God revealing His Word to mankind. This revealed revelation becomes the rock on which Peter stakes his entire life. In John 6, we're not going to turn there because I want to get to some other things. Jesus makes the most horrible, offensive statement a Jew could possibly make. Jews had real problems with issues of blood, right? Uh, During normal, natural life, uh, there's a cycle that occurs. Uh, Yeah, people are laughing already. Uh, You had to be outside the camp. Anything you touched was unclean. Uh, If an animal was uh, strangled or their uh, steak, for instance, was bloody, Jews would not touch it. And they would not do those things because they had a real reverence for blood because it was the source of life. So Jesus stands up in front of all of his followers and he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't follow me. If there had ever been a crazy thing said, if there had ever been something that had the ability to make you run, you know, that pastor has lost his mind, this would be it. But Peter had had the word revealed to him in a special way, right down in his heart. So Jesus looks right at him and says, do you want to go too? Right? Not begging him to stay. Do you want to go too? John 6, 68. Peter's answer, where would I go? You have the very words of life. Peter was founded upon a rock that couldn't be shaken. He was tested more than any of the other apostles. Sifted. Sifted like wheat. And you say, but he failed. He failed. Nobody who trusts Jesus has failed. He stumbled. But he made it to glory. He gave his life and his wife's life and his children's lives. If you think he's the Pope, I'm sorry. But he gave all of his family's lives the revealed Word of God. I would say that's quite a legacy, wouldn't you? I don't want to tell you about how Peter died and get into all of that. I want to tell you that the revealed Word of God is like a rock. There's a rock that would be cut out of a mountain, Daniel 2 says, and it would fall on the kingdoms of the world and it would fill the whole earth. The revelation of God is something that is supposed to be moving, growing, stretching out over all of the globe and taking over the occupied territories of the enemy. Listen to what happens here. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. You're a little stone. And on this great big bedrock foundational principle, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The traditional interpretation, I think, is right. I think that the rock is the very revealed word of God in his life, and he would take a stand and nothing would overcome it. But I want you to know you cannot escape the Jewish background here, and it is beautiful. There was another rock in view. Jesus was standing in front of it. It had pan 
on it. It had child sacrifice associated with it, and it was the oppressive Roman power that was crushing the Jewish people. Why do you build gates? You don't build gates because you're attacking. You build gates because you are defending. says, Peter, this that I've given you is a rock, and those gates of Hades will not be able to stop you. Because what I just planted in you is going to take over the entire creation. You will kick down those gates of hell. This thing that is enslaving these people, the revelation I've given you will set them all free. Saints, this is the power of the gospel of which Paul was not ashamed to declare. There is a world system that is like the gates of Hades. It's trying to defend its territory. It's been going on since Genesis 1 when there was darkness and God introduced light and light pushed back the darkness. It's been going on since Adam was told subdue the earth. But man never had the power to do it until God's word became revealed in our hearts. And then it's like we were given keys to a kingdom. We have within us the ability to contact God, to Him to contact us. When you have that happen, Jesus says, it is like a man who built his house upon a rock and the storms came and the wind blew and it beat against the house, but the house would not fall. So many times our visions and our lives are built on sand. What is God's Word revealing to you? gate is a defensive structure. I'm suggesting we put hell on the defensive. That we be what Matthew, what Luke, what Mark record. Forceful men that lay hold of the kingdom. I'm not just interested in standing on the rock in my life. I'm interested in putting others upon the rock in their life. And sometimes that means you do what's in their best interest, not what's in yours. Sometimes that means you take it right on the chin because it's what Jesus would do. Paul said he had weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left hand. And he destroyed arguments, pretensions, because they exalted themselves against his knowledge, his revealed word of God in his life. Come on, saints. Do you care about the people on your left and right? Do you care about the people out there? Do you care about the people in your workplace or is it just somewhere you draw a check? Did you choose your job? Because it made the most money for you? Or because God said, I want you there? See, these are the principles that determine whether or not you are simply birthed into God's kingdom or whether you've taken on the character of God as being led by His Spirit. When you are led by His Spirit, you have become like Him. This is the goal. Not to possess a birth certificate. It is not to say, I was saved on such and such day. The goal is to be like Him. I'm going to preach that again. That was Wednesday night. Turn with me to Psalm 91. Y'all bear with me another 15 minutes or so? I mean, we're going to feed you. Actually, you're going to feed each other. How cool is that? Hopefully you're being fed now. Psalm 91 describes the believer living the revealed word of God as a dwelling, as dwelling in God's shelter and enjoying His shadow. When we have heard from God, it is like we've been put in a fortress. It's like we've been given strength. Because now, no matter what comes, we can take our stand. When you haven't heard from God, you have every right to be insecure. You have every right to wonder, to vacillate, to do all of those things, because you didn't hear. But once you've heard, if He is Lord, you do exactly what He said, regardless of the cost, right? 
That's what makes him Lord. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of Yahweh, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Saints, I'm encouraging you to seek the face of God about every area of your life so that you can begin to trust Him, dwell next to Him. When people steal your trailers, your Bibles, whatever else, try to steal other things more precious to you. You can just smile and know what God has said. There's nothing that's outside of His hands. I recently had a conversation with a young man that I believe is cold. Cold in powerful ways. I had to give him news that I don't think was good news. There's nothing wrong. It's just a change in direction. The most comforting thing in the world happened. He looked at me and said, well, praise God. That's the way you feel. We'll work because I know, know God's called me. That is the voice of faith. It's basically a polite way to say, I disagree with you, but God's working through this, and I'm going to push forward with Jesus. That is a calling. It's required, saints. This is why Joseph spent all the time he did in Egypt. It's why Israel has spent all the time under the foot of the Gentile nations. Those that have been called to much, much is required. And part of that is the abrasive structure of circumstances that tear away and provide the testing stone for your faith. I read something I want to read to you. It's about a ship, shipwreck. The only survivor was a frail little boy. In the middle of the night, when the ship wrecked, the little boy was swept by the waves onto a rock. He clung to the rock all night long. In the morning, when the search parties found him, one of the rescuers asked him, Weren't you scared? And didn't you tremble while you were on the rock all during the night? The little boy's answer was profound. I surely did tremble, but the rock did not. Saints, this is exactly where we are. You may have shaking, trembling knees doing what God's told you to do, but His word is no less true if He's spoken it to you. We have to get to a place where we can hear it. We're human. We can't help but have those weaknesses. But making God our dwelling place, standing on His rock, makes all the difference in the world. There are two words for faith in the Bible. The Hebrew word is batok, not buttocks. That's uh, Forrest Gump where he got shot. Batok, B-A-T-A-C-H, and pistis in Greek. More so the Hebrew than the Greek word, but I, I want to read you the definition. To trust, to have confidence, to be confident, to be bold, to be secure. How do you do any of those things if it wasn't clearly said, it to, said to you? To feel safe, to be carefree, the last two. How do you do that? If you don't know, you don't know. But we have a means to find out. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. How much have you sought him about the important areas of your life? Or is it only when they don't go well do you say, why have you done this to me? back up in Psalm 91. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. God never says there will not be problems. In fact, he promises you just the opposite. He will save you, shield you, protect you in trouble. He does those things to create a stronger bond of trust. 
No matter how bad your life has been, you know what? You are here. You're here right now. That in its very self. said, but you don't know the things that were done to me when I was a child. You don't know what happened to me here, there, whenever. But you are still here. You're still here. You're breathing. You're living. You're eating. You're loving. You're being loved. This ought to create trust in the living God. How many times have you thought, surely I will perish, but you're still here? I want to read you something. Don't turn away from Psalm 91. It's Psalm 46, 1 through 3. God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, when you have heard from God, it does not matter what is going on around you. It cannot matter. Because there is a security that comes. If you don't have that, you need to get it. How about this one? Psalm 61.1 Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. If you feel like you're drowning, you might need a rock to stand on. Something higher than you. Something better than you. For you have been my refuge and my strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and to take refuge in the shelter of the wings. You know, all this wings talk. Psalm 91 speaks of fowler snare, speaks of covered with feathers, this last psalm that I just did. You need to know that when the Hebrews think of the God of the universe, they think of him in terms of something that Numbers 15 says. Numbers 15 had all Jewish men wear a garment. And the garment had to have tassels on all four corners. And in the tassels, they tied 613 knots that were God's mitzvahs, his commands. They wore them at all times so that no matter where they were, no matter what was happening, they had a symbol on them that they were covered in a mantle of God. They were cloaked, clothed in his commands. This is not all that different than the word tells you to be clothed with Christ. They were trying to do something that God had said to show that they were under God's authority, clothed in God. And because of this, actually I was in a prayer meeting yesterday where they were doing it. Little kids from Nigeria who have read about the Hebrew God had these prayer shawls. And you know what they were doing during worship? They stretched them out like they were flying. They went around the room playing because they're little kids. And that's what little kids do. And as they went around playing, all of these little tassels and stuff streamed behind them. This is what the scripture is speaking of when God covers you with his feathers. Jews said, if God requires us to wear this, it must be because he wears it. So when they thought about God, they thought of him covering them in his prayer shawl. And they saw the commands as like little feathers covering uh, chicks. Jesus says the same thing. I long to... Uh, gather you to myself, Jerusalem, but you won't receive me like a, a mother gathers her young. We have a loving, tender God that wants to pull us close to his side to protect us in the shroud of his commands. When the woman touched Jesus' garment, it's what she's touching. When Ruth pulls Boaz's cloak over her, this is what she's pulling over her. All of this speaks of coming into the revealed word of God. And it being a refuge. It being something that is strong for you.
how fitting that the enemy is spoken of as a fowler's snare. He's trying to steal from you God's revealed word in your heart. He's trying to prevent. Why didn't the seed get in some ground? It's hard. It was hard. What is your soil like? Is it hard for you to receive the word? The test is not if it's hard if you agree with it. That's not the test. The test is it hard for you to receive a word you do not agree with. Israel thought they were saved. They were sons of God. They were in covenant with God. And Jesus keeps giving them parable after parable that puts them in a position where they're not saved. Do you think that was hard or easy? What kind of soil were they supposed to have? I want to read you something about D.L. Moody and then we're going to finish Psalm 91. We'll finish up. I think we've preached long enough and I'm hungry. (laughs) As D.L. Moody said, trust in yourself and you will be doomed to disappointment. Trust in your friends and they will die and leave you. Trust in your reputation and some slanderous tongue may blast it. But trust in God and you are never to be confounded in times of eternity. Luther gave a similar testimony when he said, I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that is what I still possess. Friends, there are some things that cannot be taken from you, and they are the only things that are important. Jesus called them pearls. He called them pearls. I'm encouraging you to go sell everything you have, to do whatever it takes to remove every hindrance, to find those pearls for your life. We're going to finish Psalm 91. You will fear not. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. The word says not that there won't be trouble, but that you'll have no reason to fear Pick up with me in verse 9. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that your foot will not strike against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra and you will trample the great lion and the serpent. That's the word, isn't it? That's a good word, isn't it? The devil quoted that to Jesus. How did Jesus know that it did not apply to the situation the devil was applying it to? Because Jesus walked in the revealed word of God. He only said or did that which his father said to him. And at times he had to stop and clarify, Lord, is there some other way? Is there any other way? Nevertheless, your will be done. And he stood on that word and called it joy set before him. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Psalm 34 says that a righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord will deliver him out of the hand of them all. Long life. Last story I have for you. In the second century, a Christian was brought before a pagan ruler and told to renounce his faith. If you don't do it, I will banish you, threatened the king. 
The man smiled and answered, You cannot banish me from Christ, for he says I will never leave you nor forsake you. To this the king angrily retorted, Then I will confiscate your property and take all of your possessions. Again the man smiled and said, My treasures are laid up on high, and you are unable to get to them. The king became furious and shouted, Then I will kill you. Why, the man answered, I've been dead for more than 40 years now. I died with Christ, dead to the world, and my life is hidden in him, and you can't touch me. In desperation, the king turned to his advisors and asked, What can you do with a fanatic like this? And let the man go. Saints, if you live the word, and you invite God to speak his word into your life, there is nothing that the enemy, anti-king, anti-Christ, can do to you. He has no hold on your life. It doesn't matter what storms come, you will still stand. And I'm encouraging you to embrace that. Stand to your feet. This poor man called to the Lord, and the Lord heard him and delivered him from all of his troubles. What a powerful statement. Would you continue to call a man poor that the Lord delivered from all of his troubles? No. I'd say he had riches that you know not of. I want some. I want those pearls. Mighty God, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that there was a message within the message today that you would begin to fertilize it in the hearts of the people. Mighty one, that fruit would begin to come from this group 30, 60, and 100 fold. Mighty one, we're asking that you would help us tend the weeds that are in our gardens. Mighty God, that you would give us the opportunity to learn and grow and become more like you. We love you, Jesus, and on you we will take our stand. Lord, we will advance your kingdom even against the very gates of hell. Pan is not God. You are our God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.